If you want to take your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 11. We're starting a new series today that we'll spend the next few months walking through. As you read the scripture, you see that God is referred to consistently as the God of your fathers, or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we want to understand from the scripture who the God of our fathers is. Who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? That's what we're after today. That's what we'll be after the next few months. See, God had set aside some land for his people. Now, these guys, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, they didn't get to live in that land themselves. They were a semi-nomadic people. Their story, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is really a story of borrowed land, of being settled someplace without that place really being home. So I've been gone the last couple of weeks, and, and uh, I was with my son Jackson. He's, he's seven years old, and we took a, a man trip together. I had always wanted to drive out into the, the west, the wild west. I'd flown, you know, over those areas, but I'd never like actually been in them. I'd never seen the Grand Canyon, some of those things. And so uh, Jackson and I went on about an eight-day trip, and we started in Houston. We, we, then we drove to Missouri to see a family member who was sick, and then we started in Missouri. We drove through Missouri, Oklahoma, a little part of Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, Arizona, and into California. Spent some time in Los Angeles, and then we turned around and we did the whole thing. Over 4,000 plus miles put on my vehicle. We had an amazing time until about the eighth day. (laughs) And he and I, we had a great time. But you know, on any trip, whether your trip is a weekend or uh, three weeks or three months, the first 90% really exciting. Great, seeing things, having a great time, total unity with each other. But then the last portion, you're just ready to be home. Maybe you've been staying in some nice hotels. Maybe you feel settled in those hotels. Maybe you're staying uh, with a family member. And it's great, but it's not home. On our last day, we were trying to make it a couple hours past El Paso all the way to Houston. Let me tell you about El Paso to San Antonio. That is where infinity exists. Right there, it is infinity. I was sure that the Texas state transportation dot people, you know who I'm talking about, that they were just as all big a practical joke because you'd see on the green sign, 400 miles to San Antonio, you drive 100 miles, 400 miles to San Antonio. <laughs> I got so mad one time in that stretch. Jackson was, had his earphones in. He was listening to something. And I just was mad. And I was frustrated because, again, the sign was playing tricks on me. That I just honked my horn for like a solid minute. Just <laughs> a minute. There were, it was early, so there weren't very many people out. There was no offense to anybody. And he heard the horn. And so he pulled out his earphones. He's like, is everything okay? And I'm like, yeah, Daddy's just mad. It's fine. It's fine. Daddy's frustrated. There's a difference between being away and home. Even if you're settled away, it's not home. 
I think this perfectly describes what it feels like to be a Christian in our culture. We're settled. We have a life. We have rhythms. But it, it doesn't always feel like home. It feels like we live in borrowed land. Some places are hospitable to our faith in Jesus. Maybe that's your work. Maybe you go to work, you can have spiritual conversations. You can talk about Jesus there. Maybe you can pray over your meals. Maybe it's just a normal thing to be a Christian in your office. But then there are many of us who, who that, uh, our experience is the exact opposite of that. And if you tried to, to bring up Jesus in a, a meeting or with a coworker, it just wouldn't go well. And maybe they wouldn't persecute you, but you, you definitely would be left off any kind of party invitation or, or any kind of let's all go to lunch. Maybe in your neighborhood, maybe, maybe your street. Today you got up and everybody went to church. It was you and five other families on your street all getting in your car at the same time to come to church this morning. Or, or maybe your street is, is different and you've had one too many spiritual conversations with your neighbor and now they kind of try to avoid you. They try not to make eye contact with you when they go to get the mail. Some places are hospitable to our faith. Some people are, some people aren't. It's because we live in borrowed land. So what a perfect time to come around these patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as they move from place to place to place. I think in almost every story that we will read in the next few months, it takes place in a different location. They're on the move, always living in someone else's land as the people of God. And that's what we're going to try to figure out. How do we live as the people of God in borrowed land. So we're going to start with Abram this morning. Genesis chapter 11. His name is Abram for the first few chapters of his story, and then God is going to change it to Abraham. We'll look at that in a few weeks. This is what it says in Genesis 11, verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So our story, Abram's story, starts out as just ordinary family history. It's really the story of Terah, and Terah lived in this place, Ur of the Chaldeans, and then One of his sons died and they moved to another place, Haran, which happened to be the same name as his son who had died. And and they settle in Haran and Terah dies there. And in the midst of this ordinary family history, this extraordinary call of God comes to Abram. Because this is what God does. God calls on people. This is who he is. 
from the very beginning, he has been calling on people. Now, I know there are many of us who our main goal in life is try to, to try to stay off of God's radar screen. Or if we are on his radar screen, we want to be way off to the left where there is no action. Because many of us are afraid that if we somehow get ground zero right in the middle of God's activity, that he will come and he will upset everything that we have built. He will overturn everything that we've tried to stack, everything that we've tried to overturn, he will stack. We are afraid of his call because his call will mess up our lives. And so many of us have been rejecting Jesus or we've been doing the bare minimum. And maybe the bare minimum is just coming to church. But even when you come to church, you don't sit in the front because the front feels more like the middle of the radar screen. Maybe you sit way up to the left or way up to the right or way in the back. Try not to talk to anybody. Try not to make eye contact. If you raise your hands, you try to only kind of do it up this way. Uh, And then you definitely don't because if you don't want to be on the radar screen, you're not doing this because this is the radar screen. When you pray, try to pray softly or try to pray like, you know, just the bare minimum because we don't want God to call on us. Because look what happens when he calls. You have to move. You have to leave. You have to give up things. You have to say goodbye. But God calls on people. And it doesn't matter if you want to be called on or not. He calls on people. The book of Joshua tells us that when Abram and his father, Terah, were living in Ur of the Chaldeans, they were worshiping idols. So it's not like Abram was this amazing, godly man. He had no history with God, as far as we can tell. But the call of God came to him, just like it comes to you. And it comes in two distinct ways. I want you to take your Bible, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. The Apostle Paul is writing this to Timothy, his son in the faith, from prison. And this is what it says. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And look at this. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So the first call that will come to you is a call from God to you to receive salvation. That's what Paul has just talked about. Because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So the call of God for your salvation, it didn't start when you were born. It didn't start when you were the most aware. It started way back before even the the foundation of this world was created. The call to salvation. He talks more about Jesus through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. So there is a call that God has placed on your life in all of our lives. To become the people of God. That God has been faithful to you. That he has communicated his love for you. That he has communicated his truth to you. That you are loved, but you are a sinner, just like me. But Jesus came to to save sinners. He died for sinners. He was raised 
from the dead. He ascended up into heaven and one day he will return. At some point in your life, God has been faithful to teach you that truth and this may be the moment when he's presenting that truth to you. And he's been faithful to give you an opportunity to hear that truth and then believe it. And it's by our faith that we receive this call of salvation. That's what Paul has been talking about in these first three verses. But then look at verse 11, what he says. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. So there's the general call of God to all of us to receive his salvation. But then there is a specific call for your role in the kingdom of God. That he has a, a general call to all of us to believe in Jesus. And he has a specific role for you, a specific call to you, a specific usefulness for you as he builds his church on earth. Take your finger and look back at Genesis chapter 12 and look at the way the call to Abram comes across. It, it comes across as a walk with God. That's Abram's call. It's his call is to walk with God. Look what it says in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So God says to Abram, Listen, I'm taking you someplace. I want you to leave this current place. I want you to leave Haran, this place where your father has built a house, where you have settled. I want you to leave all that, and I want you to go with me. I'm not telling you where we're going, but you're going to go with me. It is a walk with God. Now, Abram's not the first person to walk with God. Take, turn a few pages to the left to hear a story about Enoch. Enoch was the father of Methuselah, and, if, and maybe you've heard of Methuselah. Hopefully no one has compared Methuselah to you because Methuselah was super old. And this is what it says about Enoch in verse 24. Look at these words. They're so powerful and simple. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. I mean, that's a tombstone statement, isn't it? Wouldn't that be nice if that's how somebody described you when your life was said and done, when you had breathed your very last breath? What can you say about Curtis? People all gathered around your casket and they're trying to summarize your life. Wouldn't it be powerful for them to say, he walked with God, she walked with God? That's a tombstone statement. That's powerful. It is kind of unsatisfying to us though, isn't it? Because I'm thinking about Enoch and I'm imagining him walking with God. And, I, and then I'm thinking, well, like how did he walk with God? What did he do? What things did he do that I'm not doing? Because nobody's like saying this amazing stuff about me. I'm still here. So obviously I'm not as good as Enoch because he was so good at walking with God. God just says, let's continue this walk in heaven. This would be fantastic. So what was he doing that I'm not doing? What am I doing that he was not doing so it's powerful as a vision. It's kind of unsatisfying in the, the details because we don't get the details. But that's the thing about the call of God. It's, it's not turn by turn directions. That's what we wish it was. Wish it was a to-do list that God would hand us. We'd come to church and he'd give us our weekly to-do list. Here's, here's your to-do list. It's from God. You know, we print them out on some kind of like heavenly, holy 3D printer or something. Tablets, paper tablets of stones. It'd be amazing. Um, copywriting this right now. It's on recorded uh, 2013. 
uh, you get your tablet to-do list from God for the week, and it's like, I want you to, to leave here, go into the parking lot, get in your car, I want you to go to this restaurant. When you get to this restaurant, your waiter's going to come over, your waitress is going to come over, and I want you to say these three words to them. When you say these three words to them, they're going to immediately start weeping right there in the middle of the restaurant. You're going to say, how can I pray for you in this? And they're going to tell you how you can pray for them, and it's going to be fantastic. That's Sunday. And we would do that if we got those specific directions. But we don't get those specific directions. And so what we say to the waiter or the waitress is, can I have a Dr. Pepper, please? <laughs> and that's good. Or, or you get your directions for Monday. I want you to wake up, go to work. I want you to start this project, then make this phone call. Then as you're making this phone call, a coworker is going to walk right past you. I want you to put the phone down, turn to them, say these three sentences. When you say these three sentences, they will rip their clothes like in the Old Testament and they will go to the cigarette tray because there's still one in the break room and they will dump the ashes on their head, have them get down on their knees and pray to receive Jesus right there. That's your instructions for Monday. And listen... It's crazy, but if I got directions from God like that, I would do it. If I got turn-by-turn directions, I would do it because there wouldn't be so much mystery and I wouldn't be so afraid. Unfortunately, that is not the way the call of God comes to us. It comes like in Isaiah chapter 30 when it says to the people of Israel, you will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And sometimes it's going to say, go to the left. And sometimes that voice is going to say, go to the right. We would like the turn by turn, step by step directions, the to-do list, but that's not how it comes. We are responsible if we're going to walk with God, if we're going to receive our calling, we have to learn to listen and discern. I remember when I was younger, I was trying to try to figure out if, if, if God wanted me to be a minister. That's kind of a big vocation choice. You know, every single person, every single one of us is a minister of some kind here. But then some people, it's what they do for a living. They lead the church. All of us have a ministry, but some people have the ministry of leading the ministries. And, and so I was trying to figure out if that's what God wanted me to do. And I kind of felt like he, it was, but that it seemed weird and it seemed kind of scary. And so I was with one of my pastors one time and he was running some errands. And so I'm just telling him about, you know, I'm just really struggling. I, I don't know what God is saying. The way I describe it is it, it was like someone was speaking underwater. I don't know if you've talked underwater lately, probably not a thing that you do, but uh, it, try it. And, and, and what you remember maybe from when you were a kid is when you speak underwater, you can hear that someone is talking, but you can't quite make out what they are saying. And that's the way I felt, like God was speaking to me. I just didn't know what he was saying. And so I'm telling this pastor about it, my friend and uh, my pastor. And, and he goes, uh, well, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, he's getting ready to say like, yes, God is calling you to be a minister. And not only is he calling you to be a minister, you're going to be the best minister who ever lived. And it's going to be amazing. And you're going to be awesome. And I'm so proud of you right now. That's what I was hoping he was saying. What he said instead was, well, as we're walking into the Walmart, so pretty classy scenario here. Well, God wants you to know, and when you're ready and he's ready, you'll know. And I wanted to say, well, what you need to know is I'm going to punch you in the face right now. 
That was totally unhelpful. <laughs> but he was just saying this. Nobody can discern the call of God for you except you. And when you get the call, you should go and seek out some wisdom to make sure that it is God who is speaking to you because I have a lot of voices in my head and mind and some of them are good and some of them are selfish. Some of them are pure and some of them are not pure. So it doesn't make us infallible, but at the end of the day, there's gonna be a voice in your life. It's not gonna say turn left, turn right, stop, wait 30 seconds, three steps forward. It's gonna say this is the way, walk in it. Turn to the right here. Now turn to the left. So I can't give you today what I would like to, which is five steps to ensure that you understand what God's will is for your life, what his call is specifically for you. But I think there are some things that we can learn from Abram this morning as we keep them in mind. So if you're gonna write something down, these would be good things to write down, I think. Number one, God's calling can come out of your struggle. God's calling can come out of your struggle. As you just look at the page of Genesis chapter 11, you'll see that most of the chapter, or at least half of the chapter, is, is a lineage. It starts in verse 10. It says, these are the generations of Shem. And when Shem was 100 years old, he fathered such and such and such and such. And then it goes through this long list of generations. It gets to verse 26, and it says, and when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So his lineage, this was a, a big deal. And then even in the brief history we get, we get about, you know, Terah's sons and Terah's sons married these women and uh, Haran had this son and, and we get kind of the family history. So there's this lineage and the lineage is important in Genesis chapter 11. But we learn at the end of Genesis chapter 11 that Abraham or Abram cannot contribute to that lineage. Something really important going on in this chapter and he is powerless to contribute to it. Now, all of us have either experienced our, ourselves or we know someone who has experienced that pain that comes with not being able to have a child. You've either experienced that yourself or you've walked with somebody who is experiencing that pain. And Abram and Sarai, they are experiencing that same pain. But on top of their pain is an incredible amount of shame because they were expected to contribute to the lineage. This was not just some family pressure to have grandkids. No, this was contributing to the family line. So not only were they feeling the sting of not being able to have a child that they could love themselves, but they looked at their family members and they felt ashamed because they couldn't do what was expected of them. But then that struggle is connected to God's call. Because look what it says in chapter 12, verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. See, the struggle and the calling were connected. See, we're a simple people. We like to divide our lives into two places. There's the good stuff that happens to us, and there's the bad stuff that happens to us. And we love the good stuff, don't, don't we? That's the stuff we tell. Even some of the good stuff we embellish to make it look even gooder 
right? Even better, even greater, right? We've got the good stuff that happens to us and we've got the bad stuff. And the bad stuff we want to forget or we're embarrassed about. Maybe the bad stuff is just stuff that was out of your control that happened. Maybe the bad stuff is stuff that you did because you made some mistakes. You made some bad decisions. We like to keep that away. If we can erase it, we would like to erase it. But what if God doesn't want us to just divide our lives into those two things? What if he doesn't just want us to make all the good stuff what's available to him to use? What if it's some of the struggle? What if it's some of the fight? What if it's some of the pain that God wants to use in your calling? You ever think about what makes somebody an expert? I think our immediate instinct is knowledge. You know, somebody who has a lot of knowledge has expertise. Really smart. They read all the time. Like you want to read all the time, but they're actually the people who pick up the book, right? We pick up the remote, they pick up the book. And we feel bad about that, but not bad enough to change it, you know? And so those kind of being, end up being the experts in our lives. But really, once you really think about it, it's not people who have knowledge who have expertise. Because, just ask yourself this question, would you want a freshly educated doctor to operate on your brain and it is his or hers very first time? No way. I want the old person. I want the, the guy who first started, the first guy who cracked open somebody's skull. That's the guy I want working on me. Why? Because he has experience or she has experience. That's what makes you an expert at something. It's not just knowledge. We see that in the scripture. You remember? People are always saying about Jesus that, and they're amazed by his authority. And they would say, Jesus teaches with authority. These teachers of the law, they don't have any authority. He teaches differently. Now, the teachers of the law, they were supremely educated. I would guess that they were even more educated than Jesus. They didn't have to go and be a carpenter. They could kind of succeed in the rabbinical school. They were gifted. They were talented. They were educated. And yet when they taught, they didn't teach with experience. They didn't teach with authority. Where did Jesus get his experience? Well, he got his experience by going up on top of the mountain early in the morning to pray. He got his experience by actually touching those who were broken. He got his, ex- his authority from his experience. And you've had experiences. Some of them have been good and some of them have been bad. And some of that struggle that you've gone through makes you an expert to speak into and encourage as someone else struggles with that same thing. You know, nobody wants to be an expert at walking with Jesus through cancer. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to be an expert of what to do when your husband leaves you. No one wants to be an expert about what it's like to be a prodigal son or prodigal daughter. We want to be experts in the things that make us look good. But what is this city filled with? It's filled with people who are far from God. It's filled with people who are hurting. It's filled with people who are broken. And listen, we are experts at what it's like to experience that. Some of us have 
more than enough qualifications to influence those in our circle, to influence people at work, to influence people in our neighborhood, to influence people in our city. But we just want expertise in the stuff that's shiny. We just want expertise in the stuff that's nice. Nobody wants expertise in the hard stuff, but it's in the hard stuff that your calling may come. It may be in the struggle that you find that you have the most authority to speak. So don't deny your expertise. It may not get you any credibility on the corporate ladder. Your expertise may not get you any credibility or acclaim on your street. But it may be where you have the most influence. That struggle may be where your calling comes from. So don't deny your expertise. The second thing I would love for you to remember as you try to listen for your specific calling in this season of your life, is God's calling should be your defining characteristic. God's calling should be your defining characteristic. See, from this moment, Genesis chapter 12, Abram is known as God's person. He's the one that God called. You even go to the end of the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, they're still reaching back to this moment, Genesis chapter 12 about how Abram was called by God. He didn't get it perfect. He messed up a lot. In fact, we're going to see in just two or three weeks uh, some colossal mistakes, the first of his colossal mistakes. But this calling was what defined him. It was his defining characteristic. And it should be for us too. That he has called you to salvation, which means that in Christ you are holy. In Christ you are pure. In Christ you are loved. In Christ you are accepted. Those should be defining characteristics for you. And then even your specific role in the people of God. Your specific ministry that he's calling you to in this season should be a defining characteristic for you. See, I think all of us understand, even if you're not sure you believe in Jesus, but you believe in God, if you just believe that a God exists, I think it's common sense say that if there is a God out there, that he has expectations for us. I don't think that's a big leap to say that God exists and maybe he wants some things from us. All of us understand that. The question is, not does God have a direction for my life, but will God's direction for my life be my direction for my life? Will God's mandate for me, will God's calling on me be my calling on me? See, there's a difference Because you are the most influential person in your life. I don't know if you've thought about that. But you love you. You respect you. You listen to you. You do what you want you to do. You are your own boss and your own follower all at the same time. There is no one on this planet who has more influence on you than you do. So, in all the authority that you carry over yourself... Is God's will for you, your will for you. That's a sign of what the Bible calls sanctification. That what what God wants and what we want get closer and closer together. That our will for us is conformed to his will for us. There's a a difference. For example, maybe you're going to go to work tomorrow and And God's call on your life as you work in that place is that you would influence your coworkers towards the kingdom of God. 
But if you don't agree with that, maybe your will for you at work is just to use those relationships to climb the ladder or to just make money or just to have a good time while you're putting in your time at work. Maybe you're a teacher. And God's will for you this semester is to show the love of Jesus to these children. That's God's call on your life through your vocation. But is that your call on your life through your vocation? Because it may not be. Maybe you just end up showing up at work every day and just trying to endure them, just trying to hope that the clock, you know, passes by quickly. Or maybe you try to use them to, to get good test scores so that you can get some kind of acclaim and recognition in your school building. Maybe you're a coach, and what God's call on you is through your coaching is to speak into the lives of teenagers at a pivotal, 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 pivotal moment. Pivotal moment. But unless you agree, maybe you just show up to coach not to help them, but to use them to get wins. Is God's mandate for you your mandate for you? Because until you come to a place where you say, I'm going to want the same things for myself that God wants for me, this Christian thing will be incredibly frustrating to you. This following Jesus thing, you won't like it. Because at every turn, you will feel like God is fighting against you. There's what you want to do, and there's what he wants to do, and they are constantly two trains coming at one another. And if you feel that way about faith, that it's constantly you tugging against God, it's not because he has done something wrong, it's because you have not told yourself, my will for me is God's will for me. And that may be the first step in really moving into your calling. And this calling, not only does it define us, it also helps us filter things out. I want you to turn quickly to Philippians chapter 3. This calling becomes the most important thing in our lives. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, look at these words, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul wants to embrace the call of God in his life, and so he uses words like, I'm forgetting what's behind. I'm pressing on towards what's ahead. I'm straining. But this calling, it became the most important thing in his life. And that should be true for us, that when you hear a direction from God for your life, it should float to the top of the priority list for you. And everything then gets filtered through that. Like I remember when Amanda and I were in college and, and I knew that I wanted to be a minister. That's what God had uh, clearly laid out for me. No thanks to that pastor that I told you about earlier. He was not much help. But uh, finally I figured it out. And so as I was in college and I met Amanda, I knew she was beautiful, big time beautiful. And she was fun and she was funny and I enjoyed being around her. And most of all, she seemed to like being around me. That was a big priority for me. 
So in every way, it looked like a good decision to move forward in a relationship. But those couldn't just be the only things that mattered to me because God had a call on my life. And this is a different type of vocation. And so in those beginning days, not only was I trying to discern if she liked me and if we would like each other and if we would make a good connection and if her family would like me, not only was I trying to figure out all those things, I was trying to figure out, does she have this call on her life too? Is she willing to embrace this thing? Because this is the path that I'm walking and if we're going to walk together in life, this is the path that we're going to walk together. See, that calling became a filter for me. And your calling is a filter for you as well. You can go home today and you are and have been called to be the people of God. And so you should be sitting on your couch some days watching TV. And it should be a filter that I'm called to be a part of the people of God. And and I'm thinking that my calling filters out this television program. Maybe there's a conversation that you're having over lunch with somebody, but you remember that you're the holy and beloved uh, uh, people of God and the things that are being talked about at that table. You just understand it doesn't fit through the filter of your calling. And so you can't participate in this conversation. Or maybe the specific calling on your life is to, to pour yourself out on behalf of impoverished children here in our city And so your calling should be a filter to make sure that you don't get so busy saying yes to a lot of other things that you can't actually fulfill your calling. Maybe you just have a unique calling of generosity. And so the filter for you is you're going to live a little bit more simply because God specifically to you wants you to pour out generosity. So what you buy and what you have, they get filtered through your calling. See, for most of us, we look at our calling as secondary. You may have said things to yourself like, um, if I have any extra time, I'll call that person. If I have any extra money at the end of the month, I'll think about giving to that organization. If I have any leftover energy, I'll, I'll show up to serve. Man, some of us, you know, we wait till Sunday morning to see how we're feeling before we decide if we'll come to church. For most of us, our calling is secondary. But in Abram, we see that the calling of God on our life, it floats to the top. There are not very many more important things than hearing the voice of God saying, this is the way I walk in it. And the third thing I want you to remember is God calls on you, so feel free to call on Him. God calls on you, so feel free to call on Him. We get this from the Scripture, Genesis chapter 12, verse 8. It says, And there He built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. See, I love this. Because I think God understood the weight, the gravity of what he was asking Abram to do. 
See, a lot of us have this assumption that God is really cold towards us, that he's, he's big, he's up there, he has a will, he's taking everything towards his will, and he doesn't mind who he tramples on on his way to accomplishing what it is he wants to do. I think many of us feel that way, that God will gladly run over me to do what it is that he wants to do. But I think this proves that that's not how God operates. This is the calling. This is the massive calling of the Bible. Leave your home, leave your family, leave your roots and come with me. And I'm not even telling you where I'm going, but God initiates a relationship with Abram that says, I have called on you. Now you feel free to call on me. God calls us into action and he has given us more than enough permission to call him into action. I think that's my worst fear is that he will call me somewhere and put me in some situation where I am powerless and left all alone. And then when I turn to him, he will have moved on to some other things to somebody else's calling, but the promise of the scripture is if he calls on you, you can call on him. He understands the cost of following Jesus in this borrowed land. He understands the heaviness, the fear in our hearts of what it would be like to have that spiritual conversation tomorrow at work. He understands the nervousness and the pit in our stomach when we go to send out that email invitation. Why don't you come to church with me next week? He understands. And as we follow his call, we're free to keep calling on him, to call him into action. Have you responded to his call to salvation? Have you heard and discerned his specific calling for you and your role on planet earth at this moment? Because he has one. Because he is the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he called on Abram and he's calling on you and he's calling on me. Let's pray. Father, would you bring some fresh callings to this room today? Would you reaffirm some of the callings that you've already handed out? Why don't you take a second in the quietness of your own heart? Just ask those two questions. Have I received and responded to God's call to salvation? And then ask, what is your specific calling on me for this season of my life? Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.